All right, good morning once again. I'm excited to open God's Word and continue in our teaching series called Law and Prophets. Uh, as you may know, uh, we are working our way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, previously, we did a whole teaching series through the Beatitudes. It was called the Beautiful Attitudes. Uh, and then we did a series, a teaching series on uh, the Lord's Prayer, and it was called Our Father. Well, I felt like it was maybe a good use of our time to circle back and then work our way through the rest of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Because here's what we can know. Jesus had intention uh, to his life and his ministry. The things he taught were on purpose. And, and uh, most believe that the Sermon on the Mount is a distillation of Jesus' themes, his common teachings. It wasn't actually just one sermon. Because if you sit down and read through the Sermon on the Mount, it's a little bit disjointed. It's like his, he jumps from one topic to the next. And uh, what it probably is, is that Matthew, over the years captured these like common themes that Jesus uh, brought to the front and wanted people to know. He felt like these were important understandings, concepts, uh, realities in the life with God. And if we're going to follow after Jesus, we should probably pay attention to those things, right? These should be the uh, important things that help guide our way of living, but also help, uh, these should be the uh, 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 truths that help our worldview takes shape. Okay, so uh, it's important for us to spend time here. I think it's a good use of our time. This is week number something, six, yes, yeah, uh, in our series, and today's called Till Death Do Us Part. Um, a little over a year ago, um, I, I sat in a hospital room, a hospital waiting room, or well, a recovery room for hours. I was waiting as my wife lay in a surgical suite uh, just down the hall. Uh, she was being cut open. She was being cut open as cancer was being pulled, pulled from her body. Uh, it was a, I was in a strange in-between space of hope, fear, and bewilderment. Uh, I felt like I was in a sort of suspended animation. Maybe you've been in those times of waiting, uh, of just such, such towering uncertainty. Hopefulness, fear, all these things mingling together and just you, you feel almost numb, but you almost feel like you're just hanging in midair. You don't know what to do next. All I desired to see was Christy alive and well. All I wanted to do was hear the surgeon say that everything went according to plan and that uh, the surgery to remove the cancer and to, to, to bring about healing, that it was successful. While surgery, this surgery, wasn't everything that was needed, it was a first step. It was a first step in that fight. There would be other battles to fight against her cancer, but this was indeed the biggest and the scariest part. It was the most brutal and the most painful procedure that her body would hopefully have to endure. I remember before she was wheeled away um, on, the, on the bed, taken down the hall, I felt stuck in a weird tension, a weird sort of tension. I wanted to protect her. I wanted to protect her from harm, but I also knew that this measured harm was an important means to cure. And that's just a difficult place to be, because everything in me wanted to shield her from this. But then I understood, too, that if we were to beat this thing, I had to let her go. So I had to step out of the way. Uh, I had to let my wife go to face pain and suffering 
into, into sort of loss because we knew ultimately it was for the best. It was for her healing. To do nothing would bring about the worst imaginable outcome. So as I sat there for hours in the waiting room, in the recovery room, I was reminded of the marriage vows that we had made, um, we had made to each other in an October, um, now over 27 years ago. I said I would love her and I would protect her. I said I'd be faithful to her in sickness and in health. And this was the first time those promises um, had been challenged. This was the first test. And what I mean is that for, but at that time, 26 years, we'd lived a pretty charmed existence. We've both been healthy. We've both been uh, uh, never under really that much care from a doctor, you know. And, and so suddenly, uh, this kind of crashes in upon us. And uh, all of a sudden, these, these, these promises aren't theoretical anymore. They aren't just nice words you say at a ceremony. These were like in sickness and in health. All of a sudden, it was real. It was real. This was the first real test of that promise and its visceral power. It rose up inside of me and it was almost like this magnetic force was causing me not to shy away, but was pulling me toward her. It was pulling me toward her and that separation, that distance made it really, really hard. Because everything in me wanted to be next to her in that moment. I wanted nothing more than to be beside her. I wanted to suffer with her. I wanted to share in her pain. I wanted to nurture her and to bear this burden alongside of her. The covenant into which we had entered uh, before God in 1994, although I didn't realize it then fully, it had indeed knit our souls together. It was no longer a choice. It was no longer a, a mental construct. It was something inside of us had actually been joined together, knit together over those years. As one flesh, we were now undergoing a test of that bonding, of that joining together. After what seemed like an eternity, Christy was slowly wheeled back into the hospital room for recovery. All I could do in that moment, I remember, was just stand there and look at her. All I could do was stand there looking at her in this bed, uh, still under the effects of anesthesia, looking half alive and half dead at the same moment. So many hours and days and years passed in that moment as the union between us became palpable. It was hanging in the air as an eternal sense of time spread over both my heart and my, my mind. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its devotion as enduring as the grave. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay, for richer or for poorer, in good times and bad, in health and in sickness, till death do us part. Marriage. Marriage has since time immemorial, it's been familiar to mankind in some form or fashion. Men and women in, in every time and culture and place, they've joined together by rite or ritual, making promises and then going on to bear children and establish families. Marriage, although it was first established by God between Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, it is not uniquely Judeo-Christian uh, in its basic function. 
Okay, marriage has been seen to serve a relational as well as a social function in, in lots of different cultures uh, outside of the Judeo-Christian tradition. However, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, marriage is infused with a certain significance, a, a deeper meaning, and really a fuller, a fuller perspective given by Scripture. This most powerful and sacred of human interactions, it is the foundation of society. It is the intended context in which we are to make new humans. I, I, I want to help people understand this. Like, why is marriage important? Because in that context, we make more people. People. We make other humans. So weird. If there's anything that human beings can do that is most like God in His creative uh, impulse, is this co-creation of procreation. That ex nihilo is the most basic, the most powerful thing we can do of uh, creating ex nihilo. Out of nothing comes something, and that something is a person. It's a somebody. It's crazy. The symbolism and the power of sexual intimacy is purposefully associated centrally and intentionally with the act and the stability of mar the marriage covenant. The marriage covenant creates the necessary context, the stable, secure, and supportive environment into which we are to bring people. Only within the secure bonds of married love are we intended to make new humans. Yeah, you kind of think it's like, well, why are adults so wound up about teenagers having sex? Well, we have a lot of different reasons why, but one is that it can make other people. It makes more humans. And teenagers, most I've ever met, aren't ready for that kind of responsibility. I mean, until you're capable and competent at cleaning your own room, I mean, why would you take on more rooms to clean? The more responsibility. I mean, holy smokes. You know, I mean, uh, put that before the kids. Like, do you want to make more people in your life? You know, it's a big decision. Anyway, I, I digress. That wasn't in my notes. But only within the secure bonds of married love are we intended to make new humans to bring children into the world with all of their needs and possibilities. Now, what's happened? Well, since the fall... Since that turning away from God in, in the Garden of Eden, we have, we have become inclined to treat uh, sex. I should have warned you guys, I'm going to be talking about SEX. Um, we've, we've, we've been inclined to treat sex wrongly and inadequately, viewing it recreationally, um, disconnected from its procreational sense and power, uh, ignoring the high stakes, um, and playing with an intense fire indeed. And this has led to many misguided and inferior understandings of sex and by extension of marriage, even in the eyes of many well-intentioned Christians. We've got a kind of a deformed and, and a distorted understanding of why marriage in the first place, what it's for. And to, to many, the institution of marriage has largely become viewed as a legal contract with the state rather than primarily... Uh, rather than first, a covenant promise made before God. And I think as believers in Jesus and people who uh, hide the word in their heart, we ought to return to this place of understanding what marriage is and what it's about. It's a covenant made before God. Thus, marriage has too often become plastic and disposable 
only as good as the paper the marriage license issued by the state is printed on, worthwhile only as long as it is enjoyable, as long as it is working for us, as long as it is meeting the felt needs of the people involved in that marriage arrangement. Modern marriage is thus able to be applied to anyone under any circumstances, any couple, in any combination or arrangement to serve their pleasure until it is no longer needed or wanted. This is real. Is that an overstatement? I mean, that's kind of what marriage has become functionally in our society. It's just a way to show to someone, I really, really care for you. We can get married. And then when it doesn't work out, we'll write songs and make new albums about all the breakups. So people, they carelessly enter into and exit out of marriages without a thought to its cosmic or its spiritual significance because it really has no meaning. It has no real meaning outside of personal fulfillment. So in some way, you can't really blame people. Why hold, why suffer in a marriage if it's no fun anymore? If it has no significance beyond what you feel or the value you assign to it. You know, if there's no cosmic, no spiritual significance, it's easy to discard it and throw it away. Even among Christians, even those who follow after Jesus, we often take our marriage covenants, which have been made before God, far too lightly, believing that the promises we made to our Creator, they can be cast aside without consequence. But this is not so. This isn't the way it really is. We know that God is a covenant-making God, but He's also then a covenant-keeping God. He is then pro-marriage. He is for the things He is for <laughs> and against the things He is against. He is pro-marriage, He is pro-intimacy, and He is pro-family. Likewise, conversely, we know then that God is anti-divorce and He's anti-covenant-breaking. So, I say all this to all that to say this that God we to play fast and loose with things like marriage and divorce and remarriage it's really to flirt with with sin it's to flirt with sin it is with this fundamental understanding of God's regard for marriage covenants that we need to approach Jesus's next teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Why have I been saying all this? Well, because we're about to sit with Jesus and hear his words, and this is going to be one of those times that he says something that runs right up against our personal experiences, our personal breakdowns, our personal uh, sense of failure, our, our aspirations, and it's a, not an easy fit sometimes. So we need to do whatever we can to prepare ourselves to hear what Jesus will say. But here's what we need to understand. God has a moral vision for His creation. God has a moral vision for the universe. Therefore, people who follow after Jesus, God made flesh, listen to His teachings, embrace them, and then construct their worldview around those things, the revealed Word of God, we too then hold to that moral vision. Okay? So, what is God's moral vision? Well, it's comprehensive, isn't it? I mean, God's moral vision for the universe speaks to everything. It speaks to sexuality. It speaks to creation care. It speaks to social justice. Everything a, a Christian, a true follower of Jesus, believes and acts upon is given by this moral vision that we know about because of Scripture. Okay? So let's start there. 
Like everything we encounter in Jesus' teachings, we must always assume that while he's challenging our rigid and simplistic religious thinking, he's always nudging us to go deeper. Everything Jesus teaches, it means more than we expect, not less. Okay, we have kind of a theological laziness that can kick in and like, oh, Jesus didn't talk about it, he must not care about it. We've got to be careful there. Jesus came to push us deeper into the will of God, not pull us further from it. Jesus is always moving us forward in our understanding, not backwards. The call to follow Jesus is always calling us uphill, not downhill. It is calling us into a more disciplined way of living and away from easy dismissal and laziness. He's calling us also away from legalism and unthinking obedience. The way of Jesus is calling us to thread this needle ideologically, theologically, to stay on that middle path and stay out of the ditches, the, the ditch of legalism and the ditch of laziness. We've got to stay in that tension, following after Jesus. Uh, it's like C.S. Lewis observed. Uh, we're being invited further up and further into the kingdom, not further down and further out. Okay? Not the C.S. Lewis is scripture, but it's close. Uh, I'm just kidding. Um, heresy. Anyway, uh, further up and further in, not further down and further out. Okay? Check yourself sometimes. Sometimes we come across these difficult uh, angular teachings and we're like, oh, I don't want to press into this because I'm a, I don't like what I think I'll find. So I'm just going to call it um, uh, this and leave, let it be that. If I don't look at it, it doesn't exist, right? It's like we're children when it comes to that. It's like, mm, I'm not seeing it. If I can't see it, it can't see me, right? Um, so let's, let's start in Matthew chapter 5. Let's jump into the Sermon on the Mount, verses 31 and 32. It says right in, this, right in the heading, teaching about divorce. Yikes. You have, you have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written note of divorce, a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. <laughs> and then it goes on to teaching about vows, which is probably connected in some way. But wow, this is like two verses. Do you ever wish the Bible had a few more footnotes? Like, Jesus, could you give us like an appendix on this? <laughs> well, he's obviously referring to the law given to Moses, right? You could give a decree, and he talks about this later. He's like, well, Moses told us that we could divorce our wives. We just gave him a note. He's like, yeah, God allowed that. Why? Because your hearts were hardened. You're a bunch of stiff-necked, rebellious people who won't do what you're told. <laughs> you won't do the right thing, even when you know what that right thing is. You follow your appetites. Your flesh is strong within you. So, um, yeah, God allowed it, but it was because you're disobedient and hard-hearted. Now, this passage, uh, these two verses, even though it is just two verses, it's had a pretty long life in the, uh, in the uh, fellowship, in the church. Uh, while certain Bible passages uh, have become clobber verses for uh, people who are gay, this passage has often been a clobber verse wielded against people who are divorced. Okay, have you ever heard this passage used to just beat people over the head? Like, well, you didn't follow biblical guidance on this, so boo, you know, bad dog. You know, uh, the first question that we ask when a Christian marriage falls apart is usually regarding spousal fidelity. Usually regarding what Jesus said, but I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. That's what we usually zero in on. 
whether or not someone has cheated because this passage functionally serves as our decision-making matrix regarding the validity of a divorce. That's just what we do. But here's the thing, to focus on the circumstances surrounding a divorce can cause us to lose focus on the central issue involved. At root, marriage vows and marriage covenants made before God, they matter and they cannot be easily broken. I mean, the two people may decide it's, it's game over, this is over, but has God said that? Has God said, yeah, yeah, I agree. I don't think so. We've got to be careful here. God says, man, covenants made with me are not so easily broken. This is why in the Old Testament, covenants were made how? You took a prized cow, killed it, cut it in half, and the two people making the covenant had to walk between the two bloody dead halves of the cow. And basically they were saying, and actually saying, may the same thing happen to us if we ever break this covenant. May we be torn in two. That's pretty powerful. God takes covenants seriously. If the marriage covenant, made in communion with the living God and consecrated within the sacred act of sexual intimacy, if it truly mingles our souls together, as the Bible talks about, the language used there mingles our souls together and knits us together as one being, what happens then when that union is violated? What damage is done? What is lost? Well, here's how Jesus understood it. Jesus understood marriage as actually creating a new person. He says, when you become married, when you make this covenant, when you join together, you two people become one person. Matthew 19, 4-9, this is in the Message Translation. He says, Jesus answered, Haven't you read in your Bible that the Creator originally made man and woman for each other, male and female? And because of this, a man leaves his father and mother and is firmly bonded to his wife, becoming one flesh. No longer two bodies, but one. Because God created this organic union of the two sexes, no one should desecrate his art by cutting them apart. I like that translation because it really lays it before us. that God brought something together artistically, beautifully, a new creation, and so to break that union is to actually break a body apart. To break a, be a new kind of being in two. Anyone who has actually been through a divorce, anyone who has suffered betrayal, they know that feeling. There is a violent tearing that takes place. There is a violent tearing apart of a created being. A wound is opened in the spirit and it feels like a sort of death, doesn't it? whether it's through the sudden, a suddenly revealed infidelity or through a slowly evolving relational atrophy in which one starts to seek affection and fulfillment elsewhere, adultery and divorce feels like death. Maybe it's not you that's been divorced, but maybe your parents were divorced and you know the whiff of death that comes with it. Something has died and we've all suffered. It feels like death. And what does God feel about death? He hates it. Why did Jesus stand before Lazarus' tomb and snort like a horse? The, the, the word there says he, he snorted like a horse. He said he was angry. Why was he angry? Was he angry at Mary and Martha? Was he angry at Lazarus? No, he's angry at death. I hate what sin has done to my good creation. 
And I long for the day that this is no more. God hates death because death is the result of sin. Now, the existence of divorce, even in Israel and in the church, has long been an issue. It's long been an issue. It's not new. It's something we didn't create this. It's addressed, then, all throughout Scripture. I want to draw our attention to two passages today, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament, just to get kind of a summary of what God thinks about divorce. Look at Malachi chapter 2. Um, this is the last book of the Old Testament, for those of you who don't know. I didn't know this until my adult life, so I'm not looking down at you. Just Malachi. Go to Matthew, turn left. Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Or, I'm sorry, Malachi chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. Or, let's do 13. Sorry, I can't read my own handwriting. Here is another thing you do. This is God speaking. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning because He pays no attention to your offerings and doesn't accept them with pleasure. You cry out, Why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you have been unfaithful to her. Though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are His. And what does He want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart and do not be unfaithful to your wife. For I hate divorce. Nothing about it is pleasing. Even if it's allowed in the Old Testament. It's like, I hate this. I hate this. Why? To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty. Okay, let's look at uh, uh, Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Now, dear brothers and sisters, you know, you who are familiar with the law, don't you know that the law applies only while a person is living? For example, when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the, law of marriage no longer apply, the laws of marriage no longer apply to her. So while her husband is alive, she, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. Okay, if we take a step back from that and say, why is Paul being led by the Spirit to say these things, to uh, commit these things to the church? What does this tell us about God? Remember that moral vision? God has a moral vision that includes how we join together in marriage, the significance of that and the durability of that marriage. There is a, a thing we ought to do and a thing we ought not to do when it comes to marriage covenants. As a pastor, over the years, I have had the painful experience of watching marriages die. I didn't know that getting into it. As a youth pastor, I never dealt with this. But as a pastor, I've seen marriages die. Despite my best efforts, despite me trying to recruit others to help, I've seen marriages become sick, and I've seen them actually die. I have witnessed the carnage of unfaithfulness. I have witnessed the carnage of betrayal and of broken promises. And there is no question, adultery and divorce, they cause deep and ongoing damage to everyone involved. 
They are destructive deviations from God's idea. I don't, I don't think we can get around that. We can soften that beyond a certain point. Adultery and divorce, they cause real pain. They affect real people in a real world. Many have long carried guilt over a failed marriage. And I'm not here to pile on. I'm not here to dunk on anybody. I bear the burden of teaching what Jesus taught and helping us better understand that and feel the weight of it. But many here even have long carried guilt over sin. They've carried guilt over a failed marriage or over broken promises. And they have for a long time felt like a failed Christian and generally just a bad person. Man, we can find lots of way to, lots of reasons why we feel that way, but I think divorce and, and broken marriage is really a, a searing example of that. Why people sometimes, even in church, sit there with a guilty, guilty conscience. They feel like a bad, Christ, a bad person and a failed Christian. But here's the thing, and I want to end with this. We must remember a few important things. We must begin, continue, and end in our gospel hope. Yeah, we know the world's a jacked up and broken and painful place. We live in that world that is jacked up, broken, and painful. Right? Sin affects all of us. So where do we go? Where do we look in this? Look to your gospel hope. The good news that Jesus Christ brought to us. We must interpret Scripture and we must interpret life through the lens of what? The resurrection. Look to Jesus Look to His life, His death, and look to His resurrection. What new reality has that brought into our midst? Here's seven things, and I'm not going to number them. I'm just going to say there are seven here for those who are taking notes. <laughs> number one, know this. We cannot go back in time. No matter what happened, you can't go back. We haven't figured out time travel yet. <laughs> you can't go back in time and change what happened. We're stuck in forward motion. We must understand this if we are to really be reconciled. You can't go back. And if we're spending all of our time looking back saying, I wish I could go back and change it, we sometimes will miss what lies ahead, what opportunities God has made possible for us. We can't go back. We're stuck in forward motion. Next, God is in the business of restoring what has been damaged. God is in the business of restoring reclaiming what has been lost, and forgiving our sins. How can you read the Bible without this remarkable sense? God is determined to forgive sins. God is determined to reconcile people to Himself in spite of what they've done, in spite of the ways they've failed, in spite of the ways they've failed to live up to their high calling as humans. He's determined to forgive sins. And this truth lies at the very heart of repentance, but more than that, the very heart of salvation. Jesus came to forgive sins. Jesus came to reconcile us to God. Next, um, and this is key, adultery and divorce are not beyond the reach of God's grace. Please hear me say this. Adultery, divorce, they are not beyond the reach of God's grace, and we must not treat it as such. I speak on behalf of the church. I am sorry for doing a very bad job of this. We have treated divorce as if it was a different kind of sin 
for a long time. We've held it over people's heads as if it's something that cannot be forgiven as fully and as freely as all the other sins we've committed. And it's dampened your, your sense of what's possible in the life with Christ. It, 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 it's deformed your sense of calling and what you think that God can do through you going forward. So I'm sorry about that. May God's grace overwhelm our insecurities and our poor teaching on this. Adultery and divorce are not beyond the reach of God's grace, and we must not treat it as such. The cross didn't have a divorce clause. Okay? It's like, Father, forgive them for they know what they do, except for divorce. You know, there was like no asterisks. There's no asterisks there. So we have to think more deeply and we have to act more graciously when it comes to what people have been through in divorce. Am I on a soapbox? I feel like I'm a taller here. Next, God's grace shown to us in Jesus Christ proves that He lavishly gives second chances. And He loves, He actually loves giving fresh starts. God is all about giving new life, breathing new life into dry bones. If any point in our theology runs up and doesn't fit against what God has revealed to us in Scripture, we need to reevaluate it. If we're holding uh, the way someone has failed sexually or, or in their marriage, we need to make sure it aligns with the thrust of, of, of God's Word, what's been revealed to us in Jesus Christ through His life, death, and resurrection. God loves giving fresh starts and giving new life. Jesus' interaction and compassion for the woman at the well should give us all great hope. Do you remember the story? This is your assignment this week. Spend time in John chapter 4. Jesus interacting with the woman at the well. What do we know about the woman at the well? Feedback time. She came at noon. Why? She had a bad reputation. Why did she have a bad reputation? She, would marry, be, she had been married, one, two, three, stop me when I'm right, five, five. She'd been married five times, and she was shacking up with some guy she didn't even have a marriage with. I mean, she was, she was cohabitating with number six. Wow. And Jesus finds it a, a good use of his time to go there on purpose to Jacob's well to sit with her, start up conversation, which culturally was not something you did uh, for a lot of reasons, but... He starts expressing interest in her and her story. And she's awkward. She feels uncomfortable about this. And then he reveals that he knows. I mean, how crazy was that? And that's when she's like, oh, hey, you Jews say that we worship in Jerusalem. He's <laughs> like, deflect, deflect, distract, distract, <laughs> pull up, pull up, you know. Uh, but Jesus' interaction with the woman at Jacob's well and the compassion he shows to her should give us all, each and every one, great hope. God is able to do abundantly more than we could ask or imagine, even in this area, the area of marriage and the area of, of, our, um, of our relationships. There's only two more here. But know this, you are not a lost cause. You're never a lost cause. Through the Holy Spirit, you are empowered and able to do the next right thing. Remember, we're stuck in forward motion, so what are we to do? Do the next right thing. When you can bring healing, bring healing. When you can bring resolution, reconciliation, do that. But do the next right thing. And then lastly this. You can live a life that is pleasing to God. Yes, you. 
You can live a life that's pleasing to God. You can be a redemptive influence in the world. Your life, you can become a living picture of healing and of hopefulness by the grace of God. Guys, this isn't just for you if you're a divorced person, you who's broken a marriage covenant. This is you, everybody. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, your life is to become a living picture of healing and of hopefulness. Guys, that is the story of the church. That is what the church, who the church is and what the church is about. So let's land there. Let's begin there and let's end there. Thank you, God, for Jesus. And thank you for the grace shown to us through His life, His death, and His resurrection. Because we all need it. All need it. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Uh, thank you for the way it comes and makes us uncomfortable, pokes us in the sternum a little bit, gets our attention. God, we trust that your word is given as a gift to help us understand uh, who you are and what you desire for us, what you desire for creation. Thank you for expressing a moral vision in your universe that we aren't left to just construct our own beliefs or uh, the, our, our, based on our preferences or our circumstances. But God, I pray that you would uh, lead us to a place of uh, humility, of honesty. Even when we don't know everything about what, what is said, we can step back and look at the whole overarching thrust of Scripture. And we can look to your heart as expressed to us in Jesus Christ. And God, all the ways that we can go about beating ourselves up. And all the ways that we can go about clobbering other people. God, I pray that we would get back to um, an understanding of your grace. If we are to wrestle, let us wrestle with your grace. God, you came to, to redeem. You came to rescue. And in doing so, you chose to make a way for the forgiveness of sins. All sins, great and small. All those sins, they don't stand a chance in the light of your grace. Through the blood that was shed, the body that was broken, and through the power of the resurrection, God, in Christ, we are made new. We have new life. Jesus' own righteousness is bestowed upon us. All the ways that we've failed in the past, all the bad decisions, all the broken promises we've made, God, they, they fade into the background in the light of our new life in Christ. So God, I pray that, yes, we would understand the gravity of our sin. But God, may we stand in wonder at the power of grace. Your desire to heal, to forgive, to reconcile, the power of your grace. God, thank you for that. God, uh, I pray that you'd do a work in this room. I know, I don't know, it's hard to say one thing in a room and not know how it's going to be received. And uh, part of that makes me nervous because uh, I can't say everything in one setting um, that needs to be said, probably. But God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work here. And I pray that it would be at work in the hearts of those who are following Jesus. I pray that they would gather up all those disappointments, all the ways they feel like they've failed and the way that they might be a bad person. I pray that they would be able to gather those things up and hold them up before you and say, God, heal this too. Take this too. I've carried it for too long. It's spoken far too loudly in my life. I know this is not who I am. I trust in your power. Your power is greater than the power of my failings and of my, my, my bad decisions. 
the brokenness and the tearing apart that I've experienced, God, you're more powerful. You are greater. You can do more than I could ask or imagine. I pray that you would do it in this today. And I pray for my friends here that may not be following Jesus. I pray that they would understand that um, the call to follow Jesus is, the, is a call into a certain way of living, of thinking, of engaging the world and understanding it. God, I pray that they'd understand that uh, in it you are revealed to us and you're calling us to yourself. And so I pray it'd be heard as invitation. Lord, I don't know what else to pray. I just think we need to take some time to just sit with you. And so that's what we'll do. May your Holy Spirit be at work in this room as we sit quietly under the Lordship of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We're going to sing one more song, and this is a chance for you to sit with the Lord, to maybe lay some of these things before Him, to examine where you've been and maybe some of the assumptions you've come away with, and start to feel a little bit of eagerness to what God might do, what kind of healing He might want to affect in you. Sit with the Lord. Take a few moments of honesty. If you'd like to pray with somebody, I'll stand right at the back, and I'd love to pray with you, go to the Lord with this. But just make the most of this opportunity. See you